data breaks down barriers to buying. So we equip manufacturers, distributors, and dealers with the information, the tools, and, and the solution they need and any services to help them sell online. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, all right, all right, all right. Welcome to episode 34. Today, we're going to be talking about e-commerce in the manufacturing sector. Our guest today is Christina Harrington, the COO at Gen Alpha. Now, Gen Alpha has an e-commerce solution for industrial companies called Equip. We're going to dig into that more as we get into this episode. But the first thing I have to say is one of the cool things about the team over at Gen Alpha is these folks have all come from the manufacturing industry, and now they've created a very robust e-commerce solution for folks in this space. So not only do they know e-commerce, they know our industry as well. With that, what are the three things you can expect from today's episode? Well, first, we're going to get to know Chris. We're going to discuss her career journey, learn a little bit about where she's been, and she's going to share some cool international experiences that helped shape her along the way as well. Second, we're going to get into e-commerce. We'll talk about the Equip platform. That's E-Q-U-I-P for anyone curious how it's spelled. We'll talk about how that works, stories on how it's used, as w- and of course, analytics. This is a manufacturing digital transformation podcast after all. That is why e-commerce is so important in this day and age. We're going to get into all of that. And then number three, we're going to talk about a cool side hustle that Chris is involved in towards the end of the episode. So make sure you stick around for that. Christina has an excellent story front to back, and I think you're going to be excited to hear it today. As we get rolling, if you want to access any of the resources she mentions during this episode, or if you want to learn more about Gen Alpha, you can go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 34 to access the show notes and all resources for this episode, or you can just jump straight over to genalpha.com to jump right into it. Before we get rolling, I do want to say if you're loving the show, if you've been listening for a while, or if this is your first episode and you dig it, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a five-star rating and review. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. It'll take you straight to that platform on your iPhone or on your desktop, and it does not take long at all. Reviews can be as short as two sentences. So would love to hear from you over on Apple Podcasts. Again, that's manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes to leave a rating and review. And with that, let's not waste any time getting into our conversation. It's time to hang out with Chris Harrington. Good, good to have you here, Chris. Cheers from Cheers. the other side of the room. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Great to be on Manufacturing Happy Hour. Well, I want to make sure I give you a proper intro as uh, as we get rolling here. So, for the audience out there today, our guest is an e-commerce expert with no shortage of experience when it comes to easing the process of doing business with manufacturers. 
Having moved up the ranks with large equipment companies like Bucyrus and Caterpillar, she is now the president and COO of Gen Alpha, a B2B e-commerce software business for equipment manufacturers. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chris Harrington to the show. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thank you. Great well, to be here. It's it's exciting to have you on, and I always want to start off these interviews with something that's manufacturing, not manufacturing centric, something that's happy hour centric. We'll get to the manufacturing okay. here in just a uh, just a second. So, you know, before the uh, as we were getting started, we were talking about Trace Locos, a favorite local watering hole of yours. And let's say you're hanging out there, and someone comes up to you, someone that's also in the manufacturing space, and they're like, you know, Chris, I know you do e-commerce in this space, but I don't think our business is is ready for it yet. I know it's important. I know I get all my stuff through Amazon in my personal life, but I don't know if our business is ready for e-commerce. How do you convey the urgency of adopting an (laughs) e-commerce strategy if you're talking to someone over a beer? Oh, it's such a great question because, you know, every manufacturing company that we've started with, Mm -hmm. they've had to go through that period of time saying, I don't think we're ready. I think fear is is one of those things and 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 I hate to use the word fear because uh that's a word that can catch people off guard mm-hmm. um but in reality you know we in in our manufacturing environments we just didn't have skill sets um yet really ready to adopt e-commerce internally so there is this mm-hmm. uh delayed reaction to Oh no! When when do I get started? How do I get started? You know, there's these worries about data and everything else. And mm-hmm. you know, what I would say is that if we look at companies like Kodak, you know, and you think about mm-hmm. you know, for those of us that are old enough to remember yeah. Kodak, you know, digital photography, there was some warning that mm-hmm. Kodak had ahead of time to really get into that space, and they never really made the change. Mm-hmm. And if you you talk today about photography and you think about Kodak, they've they've really they're gone. They're mm-hmm. they're no longer a name that we even associate unless we're talking historically. Mm-hmm. So big Fortune 500 company who really lost their rank. So, um, you know, they were warned. And I think that's how I would kind of get that sense of urgency across to manufacturers is that e-commerce is here. We know it's in our retails, in, in retail. We see it in our everyday lives, particularly after the pandemic and, mm-hmm. you know, this post-pandemic world that, that we have here. Um, and we're not even quite there yet. So this new normal that we're, we're ready to face, certainly we have changed. And um, part of what's changed is that digital experience of people getting comfortable and having expectations uh, uh, about the way things are done, mm-hmm. in a, particularly in our personal lives. And then, of course, that translates into our business lives as well. So mm-hmm. when we form new habits, those habits create an expectation and those ex- expectations are coming to, to B2B manufacturers. So mm-hmm. if they want to be relevant in the future, it's time to take the information that they have today and, tr- and transfer that into something digital and mm-hmm. useful for their clients. So that's, that's really what I would, I would start to say is I would just, you know, talk about the history and, and really think about, mm-hmm. I'd ask people how many how many things are you ordering online today that you didn't do yeah. in the past? I'd ask manufacturers to go talk to their purchasing group and say, mm-hmm. you know, 
who's using e-commerce today and what are you using it for? Because I would bet that in their own manufacturing environment, even if they don't have an e-commerce store, people in their purchasing department are using e-commerce. If we think about the, the Grangers, the McMaster cars mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. out there, there are, um, um, this is real and, and it's here to stay. So th that's what I would share. Yeah, and certainly there's a, a larger scale to, of complexity to things like large equipment, and we'll, we'll get to that more in a second. You know, one thing I was trying to look up, and I couldn't necessarily find a perfect number for it before I started, it's, you know, how many manufacturing companies these days have some sort of e-commerce presence? I mean, do you know a percentage based on the work you do, or like a swag? Oh, a swag would be under 50%. Okay. So when we talk okay. about B2B, there, you know, certainly there's, the adoption is still not yet there. Um, so it's under 50% with a mm -hmm. lot of potential for equipment manufacturers, distributors, dealers. You know, if you look at that entire space, there's a lot of companies out there that still have to transform digitally. Sure. So a lot of room for growth. I kind of thought it would be on the the latter side of 50 or the side of 50% that you were saying. Yeah, so makes it. a lot of sense. Um, we'll be diving into e-commerce more here in a second, but we want to get to know you a little bit before we do that, sure. Chris. So, you know, as I was preparing for this and getting familiar with your story, we'll, we'll start off with something that hopefully will be a little fun. It looks like you're fairly well traveled and you have quite a bit of international experience, particularly in Latin America in, uh, yeah. in your career. Was that intentional? Was that accidental? Am I on the right track here? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I would say there was an intentional piece of that I wanted to travel the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it was accidental that so much time was spent in Latin America. Mm -hmm. um, when I started with Bucyrus, you know, my mom used to always say that uh, she never met anybody who enjoyed their job as much as I do. And, and mm -hmm. really, I felt um, after I finished school at Marquette University mm -hmm. and, and my first job was with Bucyrus and, uh, you know, I, I you know, the mining industry was growing. Mm -hmm. So that always adds a level of opportunity that maybe you don't get in every organization. But mm -hmm. uh, the mining industry was just exploding and there was all kinds of opportunity for people who stepped up and said, I'd like to do that. You know, and, and you know, we had a great leadership team at Bucyrus. Mm -hmm. um, we needed support across all of our subsidiaries ac across many different countries. And it gave me an opportunity to first go to Canada, which, you know, okay. is another North American region. So, I yes, I spent two years in, in Canada as their uh, parts leader. Um, but then I came back to the U.S., became the director of aftermarket, but we had this really big opportunity in Brazil um, for a bi very big project, very mm -hmm. large mining company. Mm -hmm. And I was asked to lead the project from the U.S. And once we won the business, what I was then again asked, would you do a six-month project in Brazil? And that six-month project turned into 18 months and, you know, the way these things always do. Yeah. Um, where they, they want you to stay longer and do more and, and realize the opportunities that exist there. And as I was in Brazil, um, I became part of the Southern Hemisphere team. So I was really traveling. And actually, we called it all the different wine countries because mm -hmm. I got to travel to Chile, <laughs> South <laughs> Africa, Australia. Yeah. So all these great wine regions and really got to explore – 
amazing food, amazing, uh, amazing people. I, mm-hmm. I think that's what you do when you travel, oh, yeah. right? You don't get to necessarily see the region, but you get to meet great people and have a, a beverage and, and have a dinner and get to know people a little bit differently. So yes, I spent some time um, during uh, my time I- as leader in the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. We had recognized Peru mm-hmm. was going to be a growing uh, area in the mining industry. So mm-hmm. I then took on a, a project in Peru. And during that time, we were acquired by Caterpillar. So lots mm-hmm. of change. Um, became responsible for Northern Latin America when I was in the Caterpillar organization. So mm-hmm. really have spent uh, a lot of, uh, I guess, miles yeah. <laughs> in the yeah, air, yeah. <laughs> uh, traveling to all these different uh, Latin American countries, but really a great experience. I am, I, I've become so evolved uh, from the, from that time. Well, a, a couple comments on that. First, I appreciate the Marquette shout out. <laughs> I, I definitely tried to wear my, the right colors. If you can see, I oh, have Argyle beautiful. socks on that well, match I have as well. The blues, those, so nice. Go. <laughs> yeah, no, good, good. Uh, give a shout out to our mutual alma mater. Um, and also a great manufacturing happy hour tie-in with all the wine countries. <laughs> that just happened to be a part of your career. But in addition to that, you know, the, one of the reasons I asked that question, I love talking about travel, but, you know, what's something that you learned that helped you in your career from having that as well? Because I know there are a number of people in our audience um, have either worked abroad or want to work abroad as well. I'm just curious, what, what business lessons did you learn from that? I, I would say the biggest lesson I learned was to become a good listener. You know, um, I was fortunate that as I traveled to these countries, um, most of the people that I was speaking to spoke English to Mm -hmm. me, but Mm -hmm. English many times was their second language, right? So Mm -hmm. um, it was really important that I slowed down to give them time to make sure that I understood what they were trying to share with me, but also that when I was finished speaking, particularly to uh, you know, a subsidiary, again, or individuals who were in uh, where English was their their second language to really make sure I slowed down, that I use simple terms, right? Mm-hmm. Not because they can't uh, understand complex things, but many times simple terms are what really helps us mm-hmm. uh, act on the things and, and, and participate in, in the things that we need to do to get things done. So, mm-hmm. um, and then making sure people understood what I, I, I had to say. So it was kind of, th- does that make sense to you? you no, know, at the end, I would say things like that to make sure that, that they could repeat back to me what I had said and that there was a level mm-hmm. of listening and understanding uh, among us. You know, you can sit in the United States and be on a conference call with a foreign subsidiary and have many different uh, people uh, participating in a conversation where you mm-hmm. you can't look at their facial expressions, you're not seeing what what's happening, and all you have is the ability to listen to what's going on. And I think, you know, I really learned to slow down, pay attention, look at the nonverbals when I can, when I'm in the room with somebody. And, and that was the biggest lesson to me. Um, I didn't always know the other language, mm-hmm. but I paid really close attention to all of the other cues while I was there. Mm-hmm. The power of listening certainly goes a long way as someone that has a sales background. I've, I've learned that as well in, uh, <laughs> in my time in the field. Uh, listen more, talk less. So mm-hmm. awesome lesson, uh, especially when you, you get to have those international experiences and really not only um, those, I, I guess, those affirmations, there's those confirmations back and forth that you heard things the right way, um, yeah. but also just to appreciate things from from a different culture as well. Absolutely. So, 
Um, well, I, I want to go back a little further as well, because one thing I found interesting is that we talked to a lot of engineers. We talked to a lot of salespeople on this show. But you have a finance background. Yes. And, you know, we're, you know, kind of on the concept concept of listening. Our audience is always learning as well. And you really you, you you've been through a number of roles, particularly when I saw Cyrus, you were in um, you were in parts management. You started as a financial analyst. I'm curious, what are what's one thing that, you know, maybe reflecting back on your earlier career that you you wish you know people would learn from folks with a finance background what's what's something that you wish engineers or you know salespeople or anyone else in the organization what's something you think they could take away and gain an appreciation from by collaborating with someone in finance yeah i, I can tell you what what i learned mm-hmm. and i think it would um be really beneficial if engineers salespeople and other in the organization really paid attention to is that my first foray into manufacturing, you know, as a professional was as a financial analyst. Mm -hmm. And I was taught to use our ERP system as a tool. And that was Mm. some of the best advice I ever got. But the amazing thing about being a financial analyst is that I got to run reports that our business leaders were using to make business decisions. And those business reports taught me what was important to the organization. Mm -hmm. And the fact that I knew where to go into our ERP system to run these reports, Mm -hmm. to analyze the data, to uncover the insights related to um, information on where we were growing, where we were falling, Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, product lines we should pay more attention to. There was so much value in that as I became a leader in the organization because I knew how to use that ERP system as a tool. And I called it my tool. You know, it was my toolbox to go Mm -hmm. uncover information. So when I was looking for growth opportunities later as a leader, I'd go back to these reports that I learned, you know, in my early years just to say, where are the gaps? Mm -hmm. Where are my opportunities? Where do I need to ask people to look further into information? So I guess that would be the, the key insight is that analysts know what leaders are looking for Mm. And by understanding those metrics and then where to go find them yourself, it can open up a whole new focus area for you on on, on what's going to really impact your next move. Mm-hmm. So. Well, well, just just look at your background and just from some of our initial conversations, it sounds like as a result of that, you've and 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 your finance background as well. It sounds like you've had a pretty good skill at finding ways to systematically grow revenue. And a lot of that seems data-driven yes. in a lot of ways. Oh, and, yeah. and I feel like that's got to be a Love big foundation data. for e- your e-commerce background now as well as as, as you've excelled in that. Yeah. Um, we're going to get into Gen Alpha and, and e-commerce here in a second. But, what, you know, I, I think especially here in the Milwaukee area where we are right now, a lot of people know that Caterpillar had acquired Boo Cyrus, and you were there mm-hmm. during that situation. And, um you know, I've I've been part of an acquisition before. I know a lot of people listening have been part of acquisitions before. What what was it like going through that, um, being a part of that? And you know, what I, I guess the question I have is, what was the biggest takeaway you had from that experience, being part of an acquisition like that before springboarding into um, your next career with Gen Alpha? Yeah, you know, so as Bucyrus, we had done some acquiring, mm-hmm. um, so. You know, we, we had always learned to take the best 
from the organization that that we were acquiring mm -hmm. and then the best of what we were doing and try to combine that and leverage both to build an even better company mm -hmm. for so many years at Bucyrus we saw Caterpillar as the leader in our space mm -hmm. so we would look to Caterpillar as they were you know we were doing wonderful things but to get to caterpillar level we had to keep improving so we kind mm -hmm. of always were looking at ourselves as how do we figure out how to be like caterpillar caterpillar and succeed like them so i think you know we had them kind of up on a pedestal of of where they were as compared to where we were and and financially speaking that of mm -hmm. course would be true but i think when when two organizations come together, you realize that they have the same similar challenges. Mm -hmm. They have the same similar opportunities. Um, it's really leveraging the strengths uh, of who you are as a company. It always comes down to there are strengths in the acquiring organization and there are strengths inside the acquired organization. Mm -hmm. And if you can... Uh, just like in people, you know, as a leader, I'm always looking for the best in people and I want to put people's strengths to work. You have to do that inside an entire organization as well. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the gifts that we had at Bucyrus was our people. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, leveraging all of uh, the, the skill sets of our people. I and mean, when we were really trained very well, I had a, a, a personal professional business coach through my years at Bucyrus mm -hmm. that, that really helped me grow as an individual. Norm Murphy, I'll give him a shout out while I'm on this podcast because he was just <laughs> awesome for me. But I think um, you've got to leverage this, the strengths of both organizations. And the faster you're able to do that, the more you get to really um, realize the benefits of why the two organizations came together in the first place. So I, I would say that would be the thing that I learned. And, and sometimes that's tough because um, one organization can see them themselves as as above, right? Um, right? right. And, and so you have to work through those challenges of, um, nope, we're, we're, we're still equal, at, mm -hmm. but at, at that human level, but now we have to take the skills of both and, and let's make this really prosperous for everyone, yeah, including customers. Because at the end of the day, it's really all about your customers. What, what have you done to make your organization be better for the customers you serve? So um, it, it all flows into that at the end of the day. Awesome answer. Um, you know, as we kind of wrap up this first half of the interview, you know, I want to get to what you're the start of your career at, at Gen Alpha as well. You know, what was, you know, what drew you to that organization? You know, one thing that jumped out as we were having our conversations leading up to this was, you know, you meant you had a, you had a quote where you said you felt there was an easier way of doing business with manufacturers. And I don't want to give too much away because I want to hear your answer to this, but was there some, what, what did draw you to Gen Alpha when, you know, you, after leaving Caterpillar and, and that, that part of your career? Yeah, I would say, you know, us as founders, we built something special within the Bucyrus organization. Mm -hmm. So when we started Gen Alpha, mm -hmm. it was to take that, that special, you know, you know, our, our aftermarket revenues grew 
through the years that I was at, mm-hmm. at Bucyrus at a really fun rate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and we were solving problems both internally for our internal customers and externally for our external customers. Mm -hmm. And as we started to understand what types of technology were becoming available, Mm -hmm. we recognized that, hey, I'm sure other equipment organizations have the same challenges that we had back at Bucyrus Mm -hmm. uh, in in identifying part numbers and uh, quickly getting information to our customers so that they can get their equipment back up and running. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also knew that there was this big consolidation that has happened in manufacturing across many different industries, right? Companies acquiring other companies, which means you have manufacturing being done in multiple locations in in the world, maybe in the U.S., but also across the world. Mm -hmm. You have multiple ERP systems in place. You have multiple different sales teams. Well, that becomes confusing to your customer Mm -hmm. and where they go to get information. And and we identified that, hey, with e-commerce and some of the e-catalog tools that were becoming available – this could really break that barrier to, you know, information related to parts and products breaks down the barrier to mm-hmm. uh, customers really buying, which is what a manufacturer, distributor, dealer wants a customer to do at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. The customer wants production of their equipment. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the seller or the manufacturer wants to make sure that they're providing that in an easy way. So... Um, we really thought technology could close that gap, and and that's why we founded the company, and we started, you know, using our experience and knowledge from the past, and mm-hmm. then leveraging the technology that was becoming available to to combine this for for equipment manufacturers. Well, it sounds like it goes back to your acute observations around looking at the data, seeing that, you know, and being part of that business, seeing the aftermarket services grow and realizing, hey, there's a problem that we can solve if we put a business around it. You got it. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Steamchain.io. Steamchain is the machine-as-a-service company that's transforming the way end-users and equipment manufacturers collaborate, increase revenues, and grow together. Now, what is machine-as-a-service? Well, if you're familiar with other as-a-service business models, it works very similarly. Rather than pay the upfront cost of a piece of capital equipment, whether that's a case erector or a canning line or anything beyond that or in between, end users have the opportunity to pay for that equipment based on its usage and performance. This moves investment dollars from CapEx to OpEx and ties this investment to production output. The coolest thing is, machine builders win as well. Through this performance-based financing model, now OEMs can cash in on the increases in throughput and quality that they deliver, generating ongoing post-sale revenue for their business. Steamchain's machine-as-a-service business model is one of the best solutions I've come across during my time hosting Manufacturing Happy Hour. And if you want to hear more, make sure to check out Episode 5, where we interviewed Steamchain's CEO and co-founder, Mike Kromicky. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain, and make sure to visit them at steamchain.io to learn how you can start working with them today. And now, back to today's episode. All 
right, we are back. And, uh, you know, I guess we, we talked a little bit about e-commerce right at the intro, but we want to get into your solution a little bit more and, and talk about some trends you're also seeing in this space. So sure. another kind of general question to kick things off is, like, what's the most common objection or resistance you get when it comes to implementing, like, a robust e-commerce platform? Hmm. In our space, you know, the, the most common objection is our data isn't ready. Mm-hmm. They, you know, if, if you think about a manufacturer or even distributors, dealers, uh, all the support team around manufacturing and, and delivering products to customers, mm-hmm. when it comes to parts and products, they haven't historically used commercial descriptions mm-hmm. in, in the way that they um, sell their products. You know, typically in an ERP system, you have an engineering description with some uh, engineering abbreviations and terminology. So even what's stored in the ERP system is is an engineering description that if somebody were searching on an e-commerce store, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they wouldn't find that socket head screw, that SHCS or whatever it is, you know, that terminology. Yeah. Um, they have no images of their products or very few, if any, images, right? Mm-hmm. So um, thinking about how they're going to actually provide an e-commerce site like they've seen other companies, they, they start to uh, get very concerned ab- about that. Um, when they, you know, think about categorization of parts and, and, you know, where does this product fit? Some companies have have done a really good job mm-hmm. categorizing products within an assembly or um, categorizing hardware and kits and, and other products with other products so that, but most haven't had to do that before. So mm-hmm. some of the things that, um, you know, and then the proprietary nature uh, of data, you know, for a long time, manufacturers thought the more you control your data, mm-hmm. the the better off you are, right? And and that control of data and, and limiting data getting out because uh, either fear of misuse or competitors having that data, that, that was a real fear for many years. So there is this almost this realization that we have to get to that really data breaks down barriers to buying. So mm-hmm. we, we have to start providing data. And then I, I think the other thing to, to kind of overcome that is that manufacturers have a lot of data, mm-hmm. like engineering data, like mm-hmm. 2D and 3D uh, information and complete bills of materials. So when they think they don't have this data, in reality, a lot of the data exists. It's just pulling it into um, an informed way in which a customer could use it. So Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that gets to a big, it, I mean, the, when I think of the informed way a customer can use it, I think of analytics. Absolutely. And dashboards and things like that. And, you know, you when, when we've chatted before, you talked about a number of things and all, all like that stick out about the um, equip is what you call your solution. That's the name of your e-commerce platform at Gen Alpha. Is that correct? That's right. So we equip manufacturers, yep. distributors, and dealers mm-hmm 
with the information, the tools, and, and the solution they need and any services to help them sell online. So that's where Equip came from. Yeah. Okay. I was so. going to ask you what your Trace Locos <laughs> answer to that question would be, but that sounds like pretty, I mean, that's a pretty succinct way of describing what Equip does. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it, it really impressed me because some of the things that, that stuck out was one, one of the first things you told me was search is the number one function that gets used in there. And, you know, whether it's an internal business system or whether it's an e-commerce platform, I feel like some people forget that, that that's what most people do when they need to find something. That's you know, right. They go to Google. And in your case, like, you know, that's front and center. So you have to make that work. You talked about how it simplifies, you know, finding SKUs and things like that. And, it, uh, you know, I, I remember seeing the things like Amazon in there where it can upsell you on other products where it's like, hey, if you bought this, this might help you in your operation as well. So I was impressed when I was looking at it. But, you know, what would whether it's from an analytics standpoint or something else, you know, what would you highlight about it that that really simplifies this process for people that use it and have been used to doing things in an antiquated way in manufacturing? Yeah, I I think um, the thing that attracted me most to it and, Mm -hmm. and really where I thought it eased that that process of doing business with a manufacturer is in mm-hmm. the ability to search by a piece of equipment that I own. So if I'm the customer mm-hmm. and I've got a serial number that's my unique identification or I have a VIN number, mm-hmm. what, whatever is my unique identifier to the product that I own that's, that's down, by the way, it's down over here and it needs mm-hmm. to get it back up and running, the ability to go right into search and enter my serial number and mm-hmm. then go directly into that product bill of material where we can store a complete bill of material for that unique unit and um, allow a user to look at 2D information, that hot spotted 2D information. So we're, we're familiar with parts manuals that have mm-hmm. the call outs on there that mm-hmm. match to the part number. And, and oftentimes those are paper manuals that go with a piece of equipment when it leaves the factory. But usually when it leaves the factory, it's already obsolete as a manual because things are changing so, so quickly. Um, you know, obsolescence, supersession, upgrades to a piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. So keeping that up digitally uh, through this digital experience of looking at that online catalog mm-hmm. and interacting in 2D or 3D. So we also offer 3D where you can mm-hmm. um, visually look at, you know, the underside, the backside, the top of, uh, of uh, an assembly and click on the different parts in that. I mean, that breaks down barriers. We talked about uh, traveling to, to different countries and working in yeah. different countries. You know, a picture uh, speaks a thousand words. That's what we've always mm-hmm. said, right? Mm-hmm. And when you're reusing engineering data and you can click on the part inside your specific machine and mm-hmm. know safely that that's the part number you, you need it it breaks down so many barriers to buying it it breaks down that call to customer service or the technical support team to try to to describe what's happening on your machine when in fact you know and and oftentimes you'll call a customer call center and that person's never seen the machine before right Mm -hmm. so you're trying to explain where you are on that machine and, and they might not even get it but now you have this ability to interact so that's always been uh, the key differentiator of what we do is we incorporate that right into the e-commerce experience. Mm-hmm. One thing that always 
helps in these scenarios is any type of story. Like, do you have an example that kind of puts it all together? Because I can, uh, you know, I can certainly visualize going in there, having access to the drawings, simplifying that aspect of it, and thinking of it from the perspective of someone that's never seen this piece of equipment before, possibly. Yeah. You know, in, in your experience, do you have one that would kind of paint this picture of what this looks like from a user standpoint for uh, for the audience? Yeah. I mean, imagine that, you know, you're, you have a factory floor and on your factory floor, there are 10 units that you own mm-hmm. from a given manufacturer. And mm-hmm. one of those units is down, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe on your shop floor, you call that unit, uh, unit 57, or mm-hmm. you might even call it gladiator. In the mining world, every uh, shovel that operates in a mine, mine actually had a name. Um, yeah. And so that that's just kind of a cool story. But most of these uh, companies that own equipment, they name their tools because it's a factory floor where they have to send uh, people to that machine daily to have it operate. Or there's a piece of equipment down and they need to have an ability to reference that. Mm-hmm. Well, in our tool... Um, a customer can come in and reference that piece of equipment with mm-hmm. whatever they call it on, on their on their factory floor. So yeah. let's say it's Unit 57. Yeah. They search in global in, in our search tool, Unit 57. So that's going to come up uniquely for them. Yeah. And now imagine the pump stopped working. Mm-hmm. So the, the pump, uh, and maybe it's in you know, the undercarriage section uh, Mm -hmm. of the piece of equipment. So uh, within that bill of material, they can search by the term pump. Okay. And anywhere where pump would come up, it will highlight. So that Mm -hmm. even that word pump, it might be in, there might be three different pumps on the machine or only one single pump, Mm -hmm. but that's going to take them right into the assembly. And by clicking on that assembly, they're going to see either a 2D or a 3D drawing that's then going to show them where that pump is located yeah. in that undercarriage on unit 57. Yeah. So now they're going to say, I know it's a pump. I know it's my unit 57. I didn't know the SKU. I didn't know the part mm-hmm. number to order. Yeah. But by clicking on that, they're going to safely now know that's the pump I need, and they can get price and availability, add it to their cart, and be on their way. Uh, another great thing about our tool is we mm-hmm. have what's called a where used mm-hmm. functionality. So. Now, I mentioned that maybe they have 10 units on their shop floor, right? So if these 10 units are from the same manufacturer Mm -hmm. and that pump brought the machine down, they can click the where use button and see if that pump fits in the other 10 units Mm -hmm. on their factory floor. So if this now is a pump that's uh, common across all 10, maybe they they buy an extra one. Because now they know, hey, this can take my machine down, mm-hmm. and I've, I'm ordering one. Let me order a backup so that this doesn't happen to us again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they'll find out this pump is unique to only this machine. It's not common. I'm not going to buy a backup. Right. right. So that ability to know the commonality across the units on your shop floor is another great feature inside. So that makes it really practical. I hope that was a good visual example. Yeah. And I, well, I think you gave a very visual example because you're looking at the actual machine. You can see where that part functions within that. I'm, you know, for the people listening to the podcast, I'm waving my hands around and pointing it to like different spots <laughs> as if this machine's in front of me right now. But uh, another question that I have to ask that I didn't plan on, but you just, it popped into my mind is what are some of the best names you've seen for shovels in these equipment in this industry you mentioned gladiator surely there are some (laughs) other ones with character (laughs) you know i think most of them were female names okay i can't i'm 
I know all my mining friends out there are going to kill me, but <laughs> I'm not remembering one right now, but I, I'm pretty sure they were all female names. And, what? you know, when you, <laughs> when you um, assemble uh, a, a large piece of equipment in the mm-hmm. mining industry, it takes several months. You know, it takes several truckloads of, of pieces and parts. You don't assemble it at the factory. You assemble it in the, in, in the mining environment. And, yeah. you know, so it's a pretty big project. Uh, these people become very intimate with that project. So sure. It's sure. special to them. I, I, another visual I had was just thinking it's, pro- I, I just assumed it was like a bunch of Greek gods and goddesses <laughs> like Zeus and Hermes <laughs> yeah, and things that like that. Um, and if you do think of any throughout the interview, feel free to interject, whether it's in the middle of another answer as an aside that, that we wait for, but no, that, that piece my curiosity yeah you got it so you know as uh, i guess i i've got a couple more questions on this but you know what what's the biggest thing that data and analytics play in this as well what's something that when a manufacturer uses this what's something they're able to realize that they haven't seen before when it comes to the data side because i feel like this is where the real power of this type of solution is in e-commerce where it's like making business decisions based on buying behavior that you're witnessing are is there one or are there one or two things that jump out absolutely um let me start with saying that most organizations are not really good at capturing everything that call that comes to their call center, mm-hmm. right? The call center volume, whether it be through email, fax, or phone calls, and yes, faxes still happen today. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They will be asked price and availability for parts all day long, right? That's what they're doing. They're mm-hmm. they're continuously being asked, do you have this? How much does it cost? Okay, I'll get back to you. And either they call back and place their order or they don't. Mm-hmm. In an e-commerce setting, every time they're searching your, your in, on your e-commerce site, that is tracked. Mm-hmm. What they search for, what they look for, and then you know when they order because... Mm-hmm. An order actually transacts all the way through your your e, uh, you know, the, from the e-commerce site to the ERP through an integration. So, what gets searched, what gets ordered, and then what doesn't get ordered, yeah. right? What gets mm-hmm. abandoned, mm-hmm. and even further, did so? Let's imagine there's a hundred searches in a week mm-hmm. on a particular part number mm-hmm. or a description, mm-hmm. and of the time that part was in stock Mm -hmm. and the other 50% of the time it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And what if your hit rate to order was that 80% of the time when it was in stock, they ordered. Yeah. But in the 50% where they searched and there was no stock, Mm -hmm. only 20% ordered. Yeah. That's huge. That's Mm-hmm. tremendous information mm-hmm. now what if a hundred percent of the time they searched and you always had stock yeah and five percent of the time they bought it yeah something might be wrong with your price mm-hmm. right so you can start analyzing information that you just didn't have before sure and now you have the ability to make a business decision based on that new information oh yeah. should i try having more stock yeah. Should I modify my price? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after you know that you've modified the price or you've put more in stock, now you can do some email marketing to mm-hmm. your customer base to say, hey, we're running a promotion or, hey, we've added new stock uh, or whatever it might be to 
to share that information with your customers so that hopefully they come back because that's what a manufacturer wants to do. They want to drive, drive traffic. Mm-hmm. They want to uh, increase their conversions and ultimately increase revenue. Mm-hmm. But the only way you do that is when you take this information Mm-hmm. and you analyze what's happening on the site. Yeah. You know, I always knew as an aftermarket leader what people were buying. Mm-hmm. What I didn't have good information on is what they weren't, what they wanted and weren't buying. Because yeah. there's a, you know, if you have a million SKUs, mm-hmm. y- you know a lot of people aren't buying a lot of things, but what are mm-hmm. they actually asking me about that they didn't buy? That's where the gold is. So, yeah. uh, and you don't get it without e-commerce. So yeah. you, you can't start that process if you don't have e-commerce in place. Well, I like how you extrapolated that to marketing and sales and like the email campaigns as well. Because you know, not a, the first thing that jumped out is if you're talking about something that people buy when it's in stock, but it's out of stock half the time. That's pretty easy math to figure out what your additional revenue is going to be right there. It's like, oh, well, if we just have this, you know, that many more people are going to buy it. And boom, we know this is how much more we're going to make or 99, 90 percent sure, whatever it is. But with a very good sense of certainty that that's going to work out. That's so right. that's super powerful. Right. Um, I feel like we could talk about e-commerce all day long, but there's only so much time <laughs> on a podcast like this. And there's something... Another area I really, really have to ask you about, and I just stumbled upon this today, but you also have a a side hustle is maybe the best way to describe it, but uh, it's called Two Girls in a Farm. What what is that? I've got a couple questions on it, but I want to kind of hear it from your perspective first before I ask anything else. Yeah, so... Uh, about five years ago, we mm-hmm. started our business on on this, um, you know, it's a small hobby farm, five and mm-hmm. a half acres that we have in, in Wisconsin here, um, that we've been building a food forest. So when we got there, the, mm-hmm. the land was was ripe for uh, to, to tram- transform into something beautiful. So first mm-hmm. thing we did was we got a few chickens. Um, you know, they, they have great manure for making sure that uh, yeah. we have great uh, uh, soil to grow things from. Mm-hmm. We planted over 60 fruit trees on the property. We created a composting space. Mm-hmm. We have we um, collect rainwater. So we have many different uh, rainwater collection systems throughout our farm. And we really just um, created this space where we're growing food. Every summer we have a farm stand and we share mm-hmm. our food with our local community and and we have a lot of uh, wonderful uh, supporters in our area. So we're so thankful to them. Mm-hmm. But then um, my wife, while we were in Peru, mm-hmm. she studied at Le Cordon Bleu. So she got her international oh, okay. chef license. So as well as providing the the food, we're also doing some farm to table type activities and she's a personal yeah. chef. So she provides personal chef services. Mm-hmm. It incorporates a lot of the the sustainable farming practices that we have on our land into how she cooks food for individuals. So um, yes, it's our side hustle and it's, it's so wonderful. It's a lot of opportunity. Putting your hands in the soil is very different and and a different reward than, than trying to sell e-commerce and working with manufacturers and helping them grow their business. So um, it's a lot of fun. I dig it. And and, and kind of like I asked about the international experience and what you learned from that, I have to ask, what have you learned from farming as well that's helped you in business? Any lessons jump out from that experience too? Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I mean, I always call 
uh, every planting season, I call it a big experiment. Okay. I I say it's a big experiment because we're going to plant the seeds and we're going to water and we're going to weed and we're going to do all those things. And hopefully everything will come together for a beautiful harvest. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we'll put the tomatoes in one part of the garden and and they'll do great. And then the next year we try someplace else and we still get tomatoes, but a very different uh, variety from sure. what we got in the other spot, yeah. right? So it's all this big experiment, and you mm-hmm. you don't always know what's going to happen. And I think that translates into the work we do, right? When you when you have to keep trying things, and you have mm-hmm. to you have to do the work, right? Things don't just naturally come to any business, mm-hmm. um, whether you're a manufacturer, whether you're uh, a B two B SaaS company like Gen Alpha. Um, or, you know, you, you've got to do the work, you've got to plant the seeds, you've got to weed and, and the harvest will come. And I I think there's definitely, you know, seed, uh, plant seed harvest. I think that was a, that's a caterpillar thing too. So certainly Mm. there's, (laughs) you know, there's, there's definitely things that are tied into all of that. So seed grow harvest. I think that's what they say, but yeah. Well, it's Uh, cool. I mean, it's, anything I do in life. I'm taking things I've learned from work and applying it to my personal life and vice versa. So it's cool to see uh, you got it. how those come together. So no, I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about that. I saw that jump out. I'm like, how has that not come up in our previous <laughs> conversation so far? So, yeah. well, for anyone listening, I'm going to have links to Gen Alf. I'm going to have links to Two Girls in a Farm as well. Anything you want to find out? Tra- uh, what is it? Trace Locos or am I forgetting? Trace Locos. Yep, Trace Locos. I have a link to that as well. So the show notes are always jam packed with good information, and fun information. <laughs> but, um, you know, as as we're getting rolling to the end, I always have to ask, how can people find uh, you and Gen Alpha? What's the best way to do that if they want to get started with you? Yeah, so www.genalpha.com mm-hmm. is our website. We're very active on LinkedIn. We do have a Facebook account, a Twitter account as well. Mm-hmm. But um, our sales team would love to talk to anybody that's interested in finding out more about what we do for sure. Awesome. Well, like I said, links to all of that in the show notes. In the meantime, Chris, this has been a ton of fun. Thank you. It's been a pleasure for me. Cheers. Yep. Cheers from across the table. And uh, for those of you out there, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you again here on Manufacturing Happy Hour next time. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. Hey, hey, thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Chris and Jen Alpha for making this episode possible. Funny enough, it was pretty cool. They, they reached out shortly after I moved back to Milwaukee, and this is where they're based. So it was the first in-person interview we've done in, gosh, pro- I mean, probably nine months. Um, fortunately, big conference room, long table, as you might have guessed by uh, by the intro. So still maintaining social distancing, but good to be back in person sharing an in-person beverage and conversation. As always, if you want to learn more about Gen Alpha or our guests on the show, head over to the show notes at manufacturinghappyhour.com. This episode is episode 34, so more specifically, manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 34. And as always, you can jump to Gen Alpha at their website, genalpha.com. Before we wrap up, if you are enjoying the show, if you like this episode, or if you're liking all the episodes, please consider leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes to leave a quick five-star rating and review on your iPhone or desktop. Greatly appreciate it. Hope to see you over there and hear from you there. 
Finally, want to give one more thank you to our sponsor for this podcast, Steamchain.io. Again, these guys are the machine-as-a-service company that are allowing end-users and equipment manufacturers to collaborate based on outcomes and performance and production, changing the game on what has been a centuries-long capital equipment process. This is how capital equipment is purchased in the Industry 4.0 world, so make sure you check out steamchain.io by listening to their episode, episode 5, where we interview their CEO, Michael Kromicky. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain. Again, thank you, steamchain.io, for your support of the show. And with that, that's it for this week. Hope you're all doing well. We'll be back next week with some more Manufacturing Happy Hour. In the meantime, stay innovative, stay thirsty. We'll catch you back here real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.